Here's Rick Smith with Westfall. His shot stopped by Wakeley. Westfall a rebound. Scores! It's two to nothing, Boston. Time of the goal comes at 12 minutes, uh, 13 minutes and 38 seconds. There is determination plus. Blocked by Orr. Bobby gets by two of the Blues, three of them. Out through center ice. Full team ahead. Cross the line. Westfall drives. Scores! It's 3-0. A short-handed goal by Eddie Westfall. His second of the game. His third of the 1970 playoffs. He picked that short side and threaded the needle by Wakeley. It's 3-0 Bruins. Lewis and clear to the point. Kept in by Savard. Savard, the shot, is up high over the cage. Picked up on the left side by Westfall. Plays it back for Denny Potvin. Winds it around. Bourne is out of the box. And he gets a pass in center ice. All right, Borney comes to center. Comes over the line. Goes around Savard. To Westfall. The shot. Welcome to the Pro Hockey Alumni Podcast, the voice of hockey legends. This show is created to give a voice to former pro players and personalities, allowing them to share some of the greatest stories this game has to tell. So let's take a trip to the heart of the classic hockey universe and celebrate the history of the game with the select few who actually lived it. My guest on episode 72 is Eddie Westfall, an 18-year NHL veteran and one of the most respected players of his generation. A four-time NHL All-Star and Masterton Trophy winner, Westfall is regarded as one of the greatest defensive forwards the game has ever seen. Eddie spent the 1960s with the Boston Bruins and was known as the Shadow for his prowess in shutting down the game's most prolific forwards such as Bobby Hull and Gordie Howe. As the Bruins began building a championship team in the 1960s and early 1970s, Eddie teamed with Derek Sanderson to form the NHL's premier penalty-killing unit as the Bruins won the Stanley Cup in 1970 and 1972. Eddie became the first captain of the expansion New York Islanders in 1972 and remained with the franchise throughout the decade, providing leadership and mentorship to a group of young players who would eventually form a hockey dynasty. He was particularly stellar in the Islanders' unlikely 1975 playoff run, which saw them come within one game of the Stanley Cup Finals. After retiring in 1979, Eddie became a highly entertaining color man for the Islanders' TV broadcast as he was often paired with Jiggs McDonald. Eddie would eventually be inducted into the New York Islanders Hall of Fame. Before talking with Eddie, just a reminder to please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts. This helps the show become more visible to hockey fans around the world. You can also follow the show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Pro Hockey Alumni. Now, let's talk classic hockey with number 18, 
Eddie Westfall. Well, fans, I am absolutely thrilled to have our next guest with us. It's a four-time NHL All-Star, two-time Stanley Cup winner, Masterson Trophy winner. He is in the Islanders Hall of Fame, and of course, he was the captain of the Islanders through uh, the bulk of the 70s. Number 18, Ed Westfall. Ed, thanks so much for being on the show today. Well, it's, it's my pleasure. Thanks, thanks for including me. Well, uh, your story begins with the Barry Flyers, and you played for the legendary Hap M's, and I was curious, you know, back in those days, your teams had territorial rights, and it was a little bit different than it is today, obviously. There was no draft. How did it uh, come to pass that you ended up being found in, by Hap M's and starting your, your junior career in Barry? <laughs> well, let's see. I, I grew up in Oshawa, Ontario. Of course, Orr put that on the map along with General Motors, but anyway... <laughs> um, it was, as you had mentioned, territorial, and outside Toronto, 40 miles, uh, Boston Bruins had, had, they had dibs, first dibs on any players that came out of the uh, the Oshawa junior program, or not junior hockey, but uh, minor league hockey program, um, and they had two affiliates at that time, the Berry Flyers, which is your uh, Hap M's connection, and they also had the Niagara Falls Flyers, so, um, and Oshawa had they had disbanded the Oshawa Generals at the time our arena burned down in 1952. So oh. we didn't have we didn't have junior hockey at that time. But they built a new one when Orr came along. <laughs> <laughs> After three years of junior, you you made a uh, your debut in the National Hockey League at a 61-62 uh, with the Bruins. And I was curious, did you uh, come in as a defenseman, or did you start your career uh, as a forward? <laughs> Very good. No, no, I was a defenseman. Um, I had paid actually four years of junior. They moved the junior team from Barrie to Niagara Falls. So my last year of junior was in Niagara Falls. But I was a defenseman for four years in junior. And so when I started with the Bruins and they had training camp in Niagara Falls that year, the Bruins did. And I joined the Bruins uh, in the fall. And uh, I was teamed up with Leo Boyvin. Wow. <laughs> Hall of Famer and uh, <laughs> yes, uh, the master of the, uh, the the hip check there. Hip check. Oh, he was an artist. Yeah, yeah. That's when you know. That's when uh, you know that kind of body checking was was an art form, and mm -hmm. uh, he perfected. Matter of fact, he was the guy who coached Dennis Potvin uh, with the Ottawa 67s and taught uh, Dennis Potvin, who when he came into the NHL. In 1973, he you could tell right away that he'd been coached by Leo Boyvin. <laughs> right. And the funny thing is about Potvin, too, when you look back at it, he played, I think, four years, at least four years of junior hockey under Leo Boyvin. And yep. uh, you don't see that too much these days. Actually, I remember Leo very well because when I worked for the Whalers, he was a scout for Emil Francis. So we got a chance yep. to see uh, see Leap, Leap and Leo a, l a little bit. Um but it has to be uh, quite an experience, you're a young guy, and all of a sudden, and again, just a reminder for our younger fans, this is a six-team National Hockey League. So uh, it's, a, uh, it's a very small, closed society of the best of the best players in, in, in Major League Hockey at the time. What was your, uh, I guess, your, your first year's experience? And you had another, another young guy with you, Pat Stapleton, who had yeah. recently passed away, he was with you that yeah. first year. but. And, and Exactly, Whitey Stapleton and Teddy Green was a rookie that year with me too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So what was that experience oh, was... like jumping into the NHL in sixty one, sixty two? 
it was exhilarating in one way and you're scared to death in another because <laughs> you know you're not really sure why you're scared you're in a familiar surrounding but now you're playing instead of playing against and with boys or uh, young men you're playing with grown-ups that right that are, you know and of course you know having followed the careers of a lot of the nhl we all knew everybody in the nhl at that time with only six teams but uh, particularly with the Bruins, you know, your dream was to get to play for them. And, and um, you know, my case was old. I never signed any C forms or anything. So when it caught time to, they wanted to have me sign as a Bruin, I, I had a little leverage that most players didn't have if they accepted the 100 or 200 bucks that they gave you to sign a C form. <laughs> I didn't right. do that. So, <laughs> but anyway, no, no, it was, uh, no, it was a thrill to be, a part of that, and then after you're there and see the shuffling, particularly in the first three or four years, you know you're just you're trying like the devil to um, to, to hang on to your job, and um, you know because back then the the, the American Hockey League, um, you know they had teams and players in the American Hockey League that were very very good. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were teams in the American Hockey League that might have beat our Bruin team back in the 61-62. But that was because uh, you were owned like a horse or a cow, and you, and if you were a member of a team, and if you were a, a, a defenseman, and they had lots of good defensemen up on the on the NHL team, you got you got trapped on the American Hockey League team, yeah. and they didn't want you to go to anybody else. You know, they didn't want you playing against them, so they could suppress you and keep you, you know, locked down. So consequently, in that era, there were so many wonderful, wonderful hockey players that had great uh, American Hockey League careers, but they couldn't make it in the NHL only because of the team that they were owned by. Right, absolutely. When you mentioned that, I mentioned, I I think of a guy named uh, like Bill White who eventually of yep. course became an all-star of Chicago but was Eddie Shore had his rights in Springfield and wasn't anxious to let him <laughs> let him go yeah, I knew Mr. Shore I played golf with him a few times believe it or not <laughs> and but but there were players that had written in the contracts that they couldn't be traded sent down or ever owned by Eddie Shore I mean he was wow. a, he was a pretty tough guy from a whole different era of hockey <laughs> That is for sure. You know, speaking of a different era, your role uh, both as a defenseman and eventually as a, a defensive-minded forward in the 60s, again, you're seeing some of the greatest players who have ever played the game, and you're going, you're battling with them. One, two to jump out at me is, uh, number one, is Bobby Hull, a player that you had spent a lot of time with uh, as, an op- as, a, as an opposing player. Uh, what was Bobby Hull like to, uh, to check Oh, no, he was, I mean, obviously, I mean, people that knew Bobby Hall, I mean, he could lift up one end of the building easily. He was, (laughs) I knew him when we were kids. He grew up in Point Anne, now near Belleville, Ontario, and I I grew up not far away in Oshawa, and we played other sports against each other. And and he was, when he was 13, he was as big as he was when he was 20. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) He was, he was something special, but... No, a wonderful guy. But he, you know, he paid me some of the nicest compliments at different times over the years that I, you know, I, I was called the shadow, I guess, for, right. for the older for the older hockey fans enlisting. <laughs> you know, that was the Lamont Cranston. So I was, <laughs> my, one of my jobs that uh, Harry Sinden had me do back, we, we did that kind of stuff back then, was whenever Hull or Howe or... Rod Gilbert or um, J- 
John Beliveau, uh, I was I was the shadow. I was supposed to keep them from doing what they did best, mm-hmm. and, and that's what uh, I got. I got this. Uh, I got tagged with this thing about being the shadow. And uh, anyway, um, yeah, it was a separate challenge, you know. And uh, and it was. Uh, it was. I took it serious, and uh, I wanted to be as good at it as I could. You know, you just uh, there was other ways of doing it. Uh, there was other players that tried to do it, but one of the compliments that Hull paid me was that you know Westfall was the best at it. Anybody, mm-hmm. other teams tried it, but he was the best. And uh, and I guess one of the things that I enjoyed because I like to skate, and you know while nobody could skate like Hitler, you had to you had to <clears throat> kind of use the angles. But anyway, it was a it was a part of my career that I'm still today very proud of the fact that. I was recognized for doing a good job. Absolutely, and doing it uh, in a in a classy way. You weren't exactly mugging guys out there either. Like you said, you played the angles, got your <laughs> yeah. position, and skated end to end. Very few players, especially young players, walk away from all, uh, colliding with Gordy Howe without receiving an elbow or a butt end or something. <laughs> uh, was that the case with Ed Westfall? No, no, no. No, Leo Boyvin taught me also how to use a hip check, and he he and I practiced and practiced because uh, you know right wing, and uh, and he'd come down right wing. Del Vicchio would pass him the puck <laughs> anyway, um, and he, he he avoided Leo Boyvin. Uh, he was uh, he right. respected Boyvin greatly, so he'd come down and then he'd cut over. I was playing right defense, so Leo was trying to show me how to time it so I could move up and and get him with a hip check. And I did that one night. It worked just like Leo had planned it. He moved up, forced how to cut through the center ice area, and I moved up and hit him with a hip check. <laughs> and he went he went flipping over my back, and I heard this tremendous thud as he landed on his back. <laughs> And, and I grabbed the puck. I hadn't taken two steps, and Hal had his stick under my nose and pulled me back. And I took, took half my nose off, and I'm laying on the ice. I thought I was going to bleed to death. And he's getting a five-minute penalty, and I'm in the first aid room of the Detroit Red Wings dressing room getting my nose sewed on. <laughs> so yeah, we had we and. He, that. I remember that. I laughed. We were at a wedding that summer after the season, and and uh, he and his wife Colleen were there, and and Murray Oliver, one of our wonderful Bruin guys back in the early days, mm-hmm. uh, was getting married. And anyway, uh, I had gone to the wedding as a as a teammate of Murray Oliver's, and Howe and Colleen were there. And the reason Murray was a, originally as a rookie at Detroit Red Wing, and he lived with the Howes. Oh, right. And, and and there's another aside which is very interesting is that <clears throat> excuse me is that Colleen and Gordy this was a surprise a new a new baby Murray Oliver's living there they named they named their new son Murray ah oh, so, right yeah after Murray Oliver and he became a medical doctor right but anyway. Yeah, so how how left his mark on me, of course. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're, now it's unanimous because everybody I talk to has a very similar story. Uh, they they talk to you know Terry Roskowski, talk to Don Luce. It's the same thing. Uh, so you're good good company. But speaking of impact players, of course, now you're what you're, you're as you noted, the Bruins are shuffling players in and out. When you look at the team in retrospect, it's a 16 league. You've got a lot of talent. 
but the team isn't uh, at that at the winning level yet. And then all of a sudden, of course, Bobby Orr comes in. So I was curious, you know, being you know from that area, had you heard of Bobby prior, and what were your first reactions of seeing him on the ice? Well, I knew him. I knew of him. <clears throat> Excuse me. His, uh, you know, his years in Oshawa, you know, and, and, and because I was with the Bruins when he was a junior player in Oshawa, and occasionally I would be in Oshawa, and my mom and dad and my other brothers um, got to know uh, Robert Gordon, as I call him, mm-hmm. um, when he was like 15 and 16, 17, playing junior hockey in Oshawa. So I knew all about him, and uh, you know, and they were all singing his praises. This young little kid that he just he just skated around everybody and controlled the game and so on when he was fifteen, sixteen, seventeen. I mean, mm-hmm. so so I knew I knew a little bit about him, and <clears throat> and uh, um, so his praises had been sung up and down many times, and we'd <laughs> heard about him and. Uh, guys like well, Ren Blair, who who went to Minnesota, but he he was he was uh, he was a part of the Whitby Dunlops, which Harry Sinden was a captain of in the World Championships. But anyway, you know he was talking about Orr back in the early days too, and, mm-hmm. and of course people listened to him. So anyway, it was uh, yeah, he, he his his abilities, uh, even as a, a very very young man, um, teenager, uh, superseded him. After yourself, John Busick, Ted Green, among others, uh, have gone through some some tough times, the Bruins, but now the team, uh, Orr joins the team, and of course the big trade of Chicago, getting Phil Esposito, Fred Stanfield, and Ken Hodge, so you've got it in the goaltending, the Achievers comes over from uh, Toronto, pieces are are being put into place, an experience you'll have later in your career in New York, but now in Boston, can you start to feel things changing now all of a sudden you're going to rinks maybe in 67 and you're feeling like get a chance to win win every night well yeah we were yeah and and along with along with the trade with chicago and i i believe it was reggie fleming the bruins traded to to new york to get johnny mckenzie mm-hmm. and he mm-hmm. added a, a certain element too and then course with or in 66 rookie of the year in the following year and i don't know whether it's ever happened again but um derek sanderson is rookie of the year the next year yeah. of course derek and bobby had this had this this wonderful competition amongst each other both playing for bruin junior hockey teams one in oshawa one in niagara falls and so now they end up on the same team together and of course derek was a you know he was uh he was a little different uh personality wise but he was a hell of a hockey talent right so add those things together we had you know we had Eddie Johnson who was very solid in goal and then they got Cheevers so uh you know and then you get you get Orr and and my neighbor here in Florida Donnie Ori <laughs> comes oh, along and, right. and and Dallas and Ricky Smith who you know who complemented um the rest of the team because you know you couldn't have all of us crazy guys always in the offensive zone you right. had to have somebody pay attention at the other end and so we had this wonderful balance that uh you know that harry sinden had um, put together and and brought along together it was pretty exciting yeah as go i just go back to what you were just talking about is that you know you you went into every game prior you know just trying to make it respectable then all of a sudden you get the, a little flavor, you know. It's like giving kids, 
a little chocolate. They want more. So we, <laughs> we, we finally win a few games, and now we want more. And then it builds on itself. And, and the fans, I mean, God, I mean, they were unreal. Right from the time I started to play, I mean, they, we used to fill the building and poor. The Celtics were winning all the championships, and, and they could only get half as many and couldn't figure out what the hell the people, they all want to come watch the hockey, and, and here they got championship basketball, and, you know, they're not drawn nearly as well. Right, yeah, they <laughs> but won the them. Fans, yeah. When the fans got caught into it, and, and, and they were there, but you could feel it. You could feel it when you went out on the ice. You know, their expectations, our expectations, we were all trying to meet those. And, and, and in doing so, bit by bit, better and better, I mean, it was, it was a crescendo that just kept building. It sure was. It had such an impact on all of us living, you know, young people living in the Boston area at the time. <laughs> I try to tell people that, you know, you see what has happened in recent years with New England Patriots and Tom Brady. But, but I said, you know, you have between whatever, you 69 and 72, the yeah. Boston Bruins were the kings of Boston, oh, Massachusetts, uh, New England. Because you're on uh, Channel you know, you're on channel 3. All those things you just talked about, you could feel it building. Another thing that really played a key part was you're on Channel 38 in yeah. Boston. You've got 70 games on TV. I mean, that was unheard <laughs> of at the time. So right. we would be, you know, this transistor radio listening to you guys playing the L.A. Kings, <laughs> uh, the Seals. I mean, it was crazy. And um, it was an amazing time. But I, I want to take a step back. One player you did mention who uh, you know, passed away within the last year was a all-star defenseman and a, a, a feared and respected player, Ted Green. Teddy Green. Oh, my God. Talk oh a little bit God. about Teddy. <laughs> What type of person Teddy. was Teddy? What type of player was he? Oh, no. you know, people forgot that he. I think he's twice a second All Star, and and he and he had a tremendous shot. Not only, I mean, it wasn't you know, it wasn't a fast delivery, but it was a heavy, hard shot that hurt goalies. But he used to play on the point occasionally on the power play, mm-hmm. and but but his playmaking ability. Plus, he was. Plus, he was a he was a he was a strong guy, and one of the things that helped him a lot beginning in his career was that he had a mean streak, and he could back it up. I mean, he was a he was a he was a, a scrapper that could hold his own with anybody. He was left-handed, and boy, did he surprise a few guys mm-hmm. <laughs> in his early career when when they'd go after him. You know, he's a tough guy. Well, I'll go test him and look out. Nice. <laughs> but, but he he was I mean he was tenacious. He was so determined to be successful. Uh, in his way of doing it was you know he just he come out of there in Winnipeg, St. Boniface I think it was in yep. the north of Winnipeg, and uh, but he he was like a lot of us that he was just so determined to become an NHL player that he wasn't going to let anything get in his way. And if this is what he had to do, that's what he did. Absolutely. And one of the players I want to ask you about who uh, is no longer with us, but very unheralded part of not only the first Bruin Stanley Cup team, but the, the later Bruin years, was defenseman Gary Doak, number 25. Oh, yeah. oh, what are your God. memories of Gary? Yeah, oh, well, he was, you know, you know, here again, you know, he had a role to play, and, and you know, and he did it perfectly. You know, he was, he was, he was a quiet guy, kind of on the ice, but but he was a position player, and and he was never out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, 
there was a guy came along to the Islanders who I think still is the only player to ever win a gold medal in a Stanley Cup in the same year, Kenny Morrow. And, and Gary Doak, Gary Doak was that kind of, you never knew he was around, but every now and then when the team, oh, what, there's Doki, he's got the puck. There's Doki, he's got his man. And then, plus he was a funny guy. He had a sense of humor and a dry wit that would, would just break us all up in the dressing room in particular. <laughs> he, he had an uncanny way of, of picking on guys and giving, he was a great on the retort. Somebody say something and he had a great comeback. And, and so he was like comic relief in a lot of ways, but he filled a role that was exceptional. Yeah, he, yeah, he, uh, yeah, he missed by a lot of us. And, you know, and then he quietly, just after he retired, he kind of just, you know, he just went about his own life and mm-hmm. so on. And so we'd all look forward to seeing him whenever we were uh, able to get to wherever we could all gather. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, so, we, yeah, we, you need those quiet strengths on hockey teams. Absolutely. When you, when you talk about that, that chemistry, as a fan, I, I've, I've said this before in my interviews with Rick Smith and, and Freddie Stanfield, you could feel the closeness of the team, the camaraderie uh, of that group and that chemistry. It just felt like uh, it was so unique. You could just sense it, that it was kind of a, a very, very close group. Can you talk a little bit about that um, the the atmosphere in that in that dressing room with the Boston Bruins. Oh, God, I I remember I remember years after I retired and I was broadcasting with Sports Channel and then MSG and and Derek was doing the same with the Bruins and and I thought it would be fun to do a to do a, an interview with with my old pivot and <laughs> and, and and so he 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 brought up one of the. One of the real chemistry key, key ingredients of a dressing room, because back then, you remember the old Boston Garden had pillars that ran right from the foundation all the way up to the roof. Right. And, and we had those in the dressing room, and Derek sat near a pillar. And so I was doing the interview with him, and I said, well, Derek, you know, you sat over here, and you know, you, well, he sat over there, and he said, you know, I love my seat. I said, well, why? You're behind the pillar. He said, that's why. He <laughs> says, remember, remember or. If things weren't going well, and, and Bob would never say anything to a player, but he had this way of staring at you. In other words, you know, he didn't think you were pulling your end of the, the wagon. You're pulling this hard enough on the rope. <laughs> and, and he said, I could sit behind the pillar, and I knew I was having a bad first period. So in between the first and second, I'd hide behind the pillar just so I, I wouldn't get to stare. <laughs> but, but. No, no, there were guys, that, were, that was the collection. There were guys that were talking all the time, and they were joking, and they were kidding. And, and, uh, but everybody was included, I mean, at their own level. Even, even those two wonderful guys that sometimes get passed over, Dan Canny, our trainer, and Frosty Forrestall, right. the trainer. They just, seemed, <laughs> they, when, when you, as a fan, they seemed like part of the team. You, you got, they, oh, you just, wow. It's funny you mentioned that because in the, my mind, when I think back of the Bruins, you always think of Dan Canny and Frosty Forrestall. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and, and you know, I think at one time, yeah, it was early on. I mean, uh, Johnny Forrestall, um, I, th- I think he lived with Orr for a while. Yeah. And, and we used to travel in the early days, and they never took two trainers. They only took one, and Dan Canny, of course, was the one that went. And so John Forrestall, he used to ha- I had a little apartment on Commonwealth Avenue, uh, it was like a studio apartment, and he used to, and he used to live in my apartment, 
because it was easy, it was downtown, and I don't know, maybe staying a girl nearby. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> but but that's the way it worked. I mean, these two guys were the best. I mean, the best. They yeah, sorely missed. On the ice, the shortage, the penalty killing, not only playing on the third line, but the penalty killing effectiveness of yourself and Derek Sanderson was legendary. Certainly uh, the top penalty killing unit in the league at that time. Obviously, you scored a lot of goals off the short end situations, not only in the regular season, but in the big playoff moments, too. Oh, yeah. Can you talk yeah. a little bit about the uh, the success of that penalty killing unit and you, yourself? You talked about Derek Sanderson, and people, maybe younger fans, they hear about all the controversial oh, yeah. or colorful things. One heck of a hockey player. Of course. I knew Derek when he was 9 and 10. I was running a swimming pool in Niagara Falls, Ontario in the Jeez. summer, and he lived next door to it. So I've known Derek since he was a little kid. Wow. But anyway, go back to the penalty killing. We used to laugh, and we still do today every now and then if it comes up. and said, well, the one thing about our statistics, Derek, is that we don't have any power play goals. <laughs> but we sure got a shitload of penalty, I mean, shorthanded ones. Right. <laughs> so we would we'd giggle and laugh. And, uh, and, of course, on that note, because of the 50th anniversary coming up on Mother's Day for that 70 win, was that Harry Sinden, he starts, Sanderson and I, and, and Wayne Carlton. And nobody ever asked, nobody from the press or from the TV or radio ever said to Harry, what the hell are you thinking about? you got all this power up there with Esposito, Hodge, and Cashman, and you got Stanfield, Busick, and McKenzie, and you start your defensive line. Mm-hmm. So nobody ever, he said they're my best line in that series. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's just it's funny you say that because Wayne Carlton said the same thing. You guys were and you look at the you look back at the tapes, you guys were dominant when you're on the ice. So um <laughs> was was wasn't that it's still kind of a crazy choice if you look back at it statistically, but when you look at it logically, yeah, it was a good choice. It certainly worked out real well. How did that you know, speaking of that final goal, you know, or scores, you've talked about yep. it and seen it a million times. But for yourself and your perspective, uh, along with Johnny Busick, as I said, players who've been there for a long time, you've been through the absolute uh, worst times. It had to be incredibly exhilarating to win the Stanley <laughs> Cup for the first time. Well, again, it was a build-up, you know, with the two series before that. But uh, no, no, just um, the, the, you know, we all have our own personal things, and but collectively, that was what was important. And course you know the fans you could feel the electricity you know the fans anticipated and uh and of course uh and we uh you know we, we knew that you know we were a better team but we we couldn't take it for granted that was the thing in the dressing room practices and harry sinden was he, he knew the buttons to push he was he was not only a, a smart guy he was a great psychologist and he he kept he kept um a, you know he he didn't he wasn't overbearing but he knew when to step in with certain players when to stay out mm-hmm. and so all of that kind of culminated uh into that you know into the into the end and uh you know we didn't want to go to overtime <laughs> so you don't want to gamble on that but mm-hmm. but you know, it, it, i don't think it's changed historically it, when you go into overtime you know and particularly in a in a final um you know you the word was always you got to win it quick you can't you can't fool around mm-hmm. win the win the face off to start the and get it into their end and see what you can do and and i don't know that that's ever changed and that was the same thing so we're all pumped and that's just about the way it happened uh, right. you know derek uh, accustomed to winning face offs and he 
and away we went into the offensive zone and and it was uh and it was uh you know it happened so quickly you know when 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 you get when you get that pumped up and you don't even know your feet are on the ice you're just right. you're just trying to do everything you can not to overdo it but you just want to make sure you do everything you can as an individual collectively mm-hmm. to work out so you know so when the puck went over i i i don't know i guess i suppose i gave it to I think it was to Orr, and then he gave it to Sanderson. Sanderson gave it back to him. Mm-hmm. But my job uh, always, when I tell, tell Bob, I spent your whole brewing career run up until '72. I was I was the guy covering your backside all the time. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> well, he said you used to be a defenseman, didn't you? <laughs> yeah. I said you were trying to make a defenseman out of me again. <laughs> but anyway, um, yeah, no, no. He he started down the. He started down the boards and got the puck and gave it to Derek, headed for the front. I headed for the right point, and bang. By the time I got back, turned around, and it was in. <laughs> and Noel Picard had pitched him up into the air, and away we went. <laughs> right, and yeah. away Boston went. It was crazy. Yeah. And yeah. It, the 70-71 team yeah. is the greatest I think you're certainly top five teams of all time in the regular season. It just you have 25 goals. The team is just seems unbeatable. <laughs> yeah. As I, as I've said to the players on that team, you know, for myself as a young person looking at it, I just could never conceive of the Boston Bruins leaving losing at that point in my life. And of course, you run into Ken Dryden in 1971, and yeah. I was curious yeah. about. The feeling of uh, the sense of resolve at the end of that loss that uh, you played a pretty really good team. If you look back at it, numerous Ooh, Hall of yeah, Famers in Montreal. Montreal, nothing to be embarrassed about in, in retrospect. But nonetheless, uh, talk about the resolve to come back and uh, avenge that loss and win the Stanley Cup the next season. Yeah, well, we were we were disappointed. I mean, when you think about it, I mean, if you look through a, a stretch of about five years there, I mean, leading up to a seventy Cup. Um, two years prior to that, we had, you know, we had and aspirations of winning it then, win it 70, and then we, we kind of screwed up. We messed up big time in that, that year. And you'll remember that it was that Bruins wouldn't negotiate with Harry Sinden. We win the Stanley Cup and we lose the coach. And oh, <laughs> right, he, right. He goes up to Rochester to work for a company called Sterling Homex. Uh, which made modular homes, but anyway, you know he's gone, and so you know we were kind of yeah a little bit you know we were still we were still the same players, same team, but but you know we didn't have we didn't have and Tom Johnson I love him to death and he was wonderful, but he um, he was a whole different style of coaching than Harry, mm-hmm. and 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 so we let it get away. And we were in a we were in a, an establishment in Chicago three quarters of the way through the season, um, then the following year, and we were all sitting around drinking our draft beers and having a burger after a game, and we were kind of talking about listen, look, we, we got to do this again. It was so much fun, and we let that one get away. We can't do it. So we kind of made a you know not written in stone kind of thing, but an understanding amongst the players that. That we were going to do it again. We, 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 it's up to us. No mm-hmm. matter what, it, it, we, when they drop the puck, it's up to us to win the games, to win it again. And if you guys want to win it again, let's make up our minds now and keep reminding each other all of the rest of the season and into the playoffs. And and that's what we did. And 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 it was uh, it was exciting because we were always reminding each other. 
you know, do you want it bad enough? Do you want to do it again? Yeah. And you did, and yeah. it was a uh, another exciting time in Boston as you beat the New York Rangers to win the Stanley <laughs> Cup. And then yeah. Uh, yeah. in June of that year, your life direction changes <laughs> dramatically. Oh, so <laughs> the world, the WHA has formed in 1972. The NHL rushes to expand to Long Island and Atlanta. Yep, and you exactly. go from winning the Stanley <laughs> Cup with the most powerful team and strong fan base to something called the New York Islanders. So yep. what's, what is your, did that come as a surprise to you that you were available oh, yeah. and were you yeah. disappointed? <laughs> well, if you ever felt, if you ever felt that you were established enough to think about long term, I bought land in New Hampshire, built a house, had a pool, had a tennis court, had a trout stream and seven acres of land, and I was in Nirvana. <laughs> 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 And about uh, four years later, I'm gone. <laughs> I said, now I know what Napoleon felt like when they got him and they sent him in exile to Alba, where he eventually <laughs> died. I said, Westfall, they sent back into an island as well, Long Island, and I guess probably I'll die there too. So I have a lot in common with Napoleon. But, but no, no, you know, you, you feel sorry for yourself. You hold your breath till you turn blue, and you stomp your feet like a little kid, and, and then you de decide after you... After you talk to Bill Torrey and, and and the people that are going to try and put a team together on Long Island, and, and you say, okay, you know, let's, let's see if we can start all over again and see what we can do with this. So, you know, they were relying on me for certain things, and I was relying on them for certain things, and and uh, it was it was really uh, it was depressing in a lot of ways, but. But because there were only two or three of us that had any NHL experience on that first Islander team, we won 12 games in the whole year. Mm -hmm. Right. <laughs> and, and, but, but, you know, you could see that, uh, um, you know, that they had a game plan, and, and Tory was a, a big advocate of the Montreal Canadiens and how they built hockey teams and, and so on. And, and so he started to... You know, he knew he was going to get the first pick for the first two or three years anyway, if not mm -hmm. more. Right. And uh, and so relying on that and making some moves to bring in some veteran players, uh, there was a wonderful balance. Uh, when when we finally turned the corner, won our last game of the season, the 80th game, I guess it was back then, uh, against the Rangers, and and that made us a playoff contender in the eighth spot, and the Rangers were in the first. And we, we went to the semifinals, believe it or not. And someone asked me one time about, you know, winning the Cups and so on. I said, absolutely, there isn't anything better, particularly the first one. But right behind that first Stanley Cup in 50 years ago, I said, comes the 1975 New York Islanders. Oh, yeah. When we won that last regular season game, beat the Rangers, the number one seed. Then we played Pittsburgh. We were down three games to none, came back, tied it at 3-3. And in the seventh game in Pittsburgh, we won the game one to nothing with five minutes to go. Who scored Only that goal, by the way? <laughs> <laughs> I forget. Anyway, <laughs> then we played Philadelphia, lost the first three games in the semifinals, came back, tied it at at, at three games apiece, but we lost in the seventh game to to Philadelphia that went on to win the cup that year. So that that team, that that team of you know young kids and veterans, um, what they did was incredible. 
incredible. Right. And that launched that whole franchise. For the next 10 years, that was one of the most exciting franchises in the league. It was, and I think that... You know, sometimes because of the the dynasty years, fans sometimes forget about that magical '75 <laughs> run. The yeah. team had only been in existence for three years, yeah, and well, no, it's understandable. Yeah, and it's like, just it's uh, you know, I, I when I talked to, I talked to Bob Bourne about it, and I remember watching that series because the Bruins yeah. had been eliminated early. So on Channel 38, they would show a lot of the Islanders series against Pittsburgh. And then eventually, of course, uh, the, the the seventh game against the the Flyers was on national yep. TV, and uh, but it was, what an incredible run that yep. was! But I want to take one quick step back to January 18, nineteen seventy three. That first year, yeah, you have just lost. The Islanders have just lost twelve straight games. You come into Boston, and <laughs> the most unlikely thing. <laughs> happens in the world, you guys jump out to a 5 nothing, nothing. lead yep. in this game. What the heck was going on in that game? <laughs> well, I, I, I probably probably my buddies, <laughs> they, they didn't take it seriously enough. <laughs> well, it just shows you that if you don't play your best, you know, all the time, at any given time, somebody can beat you. That's what that's what a team like our Islander team in the first two or three years was relying on. That we might we might catch somebody just having a bad night. <laughs> well, that was incredible. I remember John. You know, John Busick had four goals. You scored two yourself in that game. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, crazy. It ends up being a nine oh, to no. seven uh, victory for the Isles. So much fun. We used to come in there. I mean, you know, and rightfully so. We're we're a struggling team, but and uh, and 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 the first. The first few games that I came back to Boston after we'd we'd won the cup in '72, and my first time talk about uh, uh, giving a guy a, a, an exhilarating lift with the fans in Boston. I'd come out on for my first shift or whatever, and I'd get a standing ovation, and 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 that happened so often that I'll never forget Don Cherry, who is my dear friend today. But anyway, back then he was coaching <laughs> later on the Bruins, and he hated that. And he used to send Jan, uh, Stan Jonathan out to try and put me up into the upper deck. <laughs> and he did. He he just didn't like the fact that a visiting player came in and got a standing ovation be, before the game even started. <laughs> and so one night, one night, poor Stan, he, I could you know he had those little choppy steps, yep. and I got the puck in front of the Bruins bench and these are all guys I just won the cup with <laughs> anyway I could I could hear him and I could see his feet coming and I give it what we used to call the Carl Brewer we I just slid the puck out towards him and right away his attention went to the puck naturally and so I just walked straight into him I put my shoulder right in the middle of his chest and lifted and I could feel the hot air in my ear and down <laughs> he went he couldn't get up so, so, so stupid me! I turn around and here's Cherry, and I'm pointing at him. I'm saying, "Hey, your hitman's not doing so good down there. Why don't you come out here? You and I'll have a little taste." So, of course, he wants to put a show on for the fans. He's up on the bench, and so I finally said to him, "Listen, you idiot." You see all these guys down here? They hate you. I won a Stanley Cup with them just last spring, and none of them like you. <laughs> well, <laughs> did he, he really got teed off. 
I used to tell Harry Sinden privately, Harry, listen, here's the deal. Why don't you fire that cherry and keep the dog? If the dog is that smart that he can pick out the goaltender for each night's game, <laughs> the dog is a lot smarter than cherry. Why don't you get rid of him? <laughs> and that would get Harry mad, too. So anyway. <laughs> That's anyway. funny. But, you oh, know, fun. that is fun. And your, your role now, and again, talking to Bob Bourne, who had uh, so much positive... Uh, comments about you about your leadership at that time your role now is uh, as captain of the team but you know in the spring of 75 uh, young Brian Trache comes up and starts practicing with you guys you get Clark Gillies in the mix of course Potvin had been there talk a little bit about your role and maybe what you learned as a Boston Bruin about mentoring these great young players and you know developing that uh, that that strong uh, chemistry in that in that dressing room with the New York Islanders at a time when they were 19 20 years old yeah, well, that was easy because, you know, I had two of the best. I had, I had Leo Boyvin and Don McKenney, um, that, that, that I was a kid, and they were so good to me, and I watched how they as captains, you know, a whole different era, a whole different approach, you know, to, to uh, personalities and all that. But I watched how they, you know, how they interplayed with the players and 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 relationships that they built one on one and 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 I said you know they couldn't do enough for me as a rookie I took I took somebody's job when I got there and it was probably one of their one of their teammates obviously it was mm-hmm. and it was it might have been somebody that they cared a whole lot about and I took the job and I was expecting to maybe take a little heat you know kind of thing yeah you know, the old fashioned way but that wasn't the case they they no they were very good and and so they develop I, I, I captain develops relationships he doesn't have to be the best player uh, but he has to be a bit of a like a coach a bit of a psychologist work with the coach and work with the players and you know cuz the ultimate goal is to win hockey games and how do you go about that how do mm-hmm. you get how do you get players that um uh, that that are better than what they give at times to do a little more. The old-fashioned way used to be that they were threatened, you know, by the, you know, um, some of the coaches and general managers, which that was the way it was done years ago. But that isn't the way it worked with these new kids coming into the league. Yep. They, they were a little bit, they were a little bit ahead of that old-fashioned way of being scared to death. Uh, that uh, you know that they were going to lose their job because now they had three and four-year contracts. So right, exactly. <laughs> And so, so those are things that you learn and you hope that you can connect with, you know, with guys. And, and uh, yeah, I used to laugh and say, listen, in this, in this Islander group, this, this ragtag group they called us at the beginning, the C didn't stand for captain. It stood for cash. I was like, <laughs> I was like their personal banker until right. they got paid. <laughs> but, but whatever it took. Whatever it took, and 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 you know we we knit that together bit by bit, and and one of our teammates back then was was uh, Johnny Potvin, and he's 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 quite ill today, and uh, he's he's over in the east coast of Florida, the poor guy, and and. And so I I go over to visit him and I call him up all the time and 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 you know I get notes from he and his wife and and it uh, it's moving that his brother Dennis knows every time I see him or talk to him <clears throat> and they both now Dennis captain four straight Stanley Cups and both of them 
and, and, and I can say this proudly, that all of those guys, Trache and Clark Gillies and Bobby Bourne, they still call me the captain. <laughs> Great. That's <laughs> which, awesome. Which I wear proudly. Yeah. yeah, and you should. Yeah. And, you know that big, that role is interesting for you in, in the seventies because as this team is coming together bit by bit, playoff disappointments, uh, loss oh, to the Leafs yeah. and uh, yeah. loss to the Rangers. Ranger. So yeah. here, here's the question: you, you talked a little bit about Bill Tor, you talked a little bit about Al Arbor. One of the questions I have for Bob Bourne, which is so impressive in this time period, is that these two in management do not panic. Nope. You keep the core of the team together until they're ready. They were, I guess they were one year away, ultimately. Yeah. And can you talk a little bit about the approach that Al and, and Bill Torrey took, of molding that team, being patient through the, the tough, tough losses, and seeing it through to a uh, dynasty? Yeah. No, they, uh, well, um, when, when Al Arbor, when he came to the, uh, to the Islanders our second year, you know, he'd been, I'd played against him. He was in St. Well, I played against him in Chicago and Detroit. And <laughs> the advantages of being old. But anyway, <laughs> uh, but I also with St. Louis where he was assistant coach. So, you know, he was, he didn't have a whole lot of coaching experience, but he was recommended. And, and there's a guy there that everybody kind of looks, overlooks when they're talking about uh, the Islanders in this case, and then later on Detroit is a guy named Jimmy Devolano. Oh yeah, and one of the one of the uh, innate abilities that Bill Torrey had, he 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 knew who to hire to have in the right positions, and and a guy named Jimmy Devolano was also part of of St. Louis with Al Arbor and Scotty Bowman. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Remember that name? That comes around <laughs> a few times. And and anyway, uh, Jimmy Devolano, uh, uh, Tory relied on him. He scouted every player you could ever imagine. He was so in love with hockey and the players. He was the best. I mean, Jimmy Devolano was the best. Anyway, um, but with Orr and 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 um, Al Arbor, well, I mean with Tory and Al Arbor. Um, you know, Arbor's learning how to coach, you know, full-time. Torrey's had experience with the, uh, was it the Oakland Seals? Correct. The GM and so on. And, uh, and so he knows what not to do and what to do. So between the two of them, it's growing pains for them too. But mm-hmm. the one thing that Torrey had was a game plan that he wouldn't waver from, and that was, you know, keep his draft picks, bring them along, and then figure out, what pieces he needed to help bring these young kids along, you know, the bossies and the trachets and, and all of these players that, that, you know, we just talked about uh, pot van and Gillies and, and, but they needed, they needed some experience to help them come along. Well, they had Westfall, but they needed more than that. And that's when they went out and made deals and got JP Parisi and Jude Druin and Bert Marshall, uh, Billy McMillan, um, yeah, and then and then that that was that was all part of helping these young kids mature and 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 get some confidence and and so that whole thing kind of just kept coming and coming bit by bit slowly. Yeah, disappointments. You know, the expectations were maybe a little greater uh, than the ability at times, and uh, and <clears throat> but it wasn't uh, unwarranted because 
in the big picture, you, they could see it all coming. And you, I mean, as an older player, I could see it too. I, in '78 and '79, uh, we won. You know, we we won the league championship. Right. Uh, both times, it was much like the Bruins one. <laughs> we we gave away more cups than we won. But that, <laughs> that Islander that Islander team uh, was very very close in '78 and '79. Oh yeah. Anyway, uh, it didn't work out, but, you know, that's a learning process. Well, nonetheless, the team goes on to win four Stanley Cups. You yeah. remain a big part of it. You know, when I think of those Stanley Cup teams, I always think of Ed Westfall. Uh, so you are, <laughs> talk about that transition. You're still part of the organization, and you do a wonderful job uh, well, as a, as a broadcaster. And talk a little bit about that transition. Yeah, I, I had announced to, uh, to Bill Torrey and Al Arbor that um, – and John Pickett, the owner at the time, um, you know, that I was going to play this season and then I was going to retire. And they didn't think that I was ready to retire, but anyway, they made some they made some stuff towards, you know, why don't we just play on? And I know I'd had enough. And it was Nelson Doubleday when, I, when he found out that I was retiring. He asked me, because he was a big hockey fan and a, a part of this whole organization, you know, in a quiet way, what are you going to do? I said, well, Harry Sindon's offered me a job back in Boston to go back and work with the Bruins, so I'm thinking, no, you're not. You're not going anywhere. You're staying here. And that's when they decided to change the broadcasting format for for the Islanders. We used to do home games on Sports Channel, Cablevision, mm-hmm. and we'd do the away games on WOR-TV. So I was working with Tim Ryan doing the away games and Steve Albert doing the home games. Uh, and and so they wanted to consolidate. It's too confusing for the fans to have you know two sets of broadcasters and this and that. And so I actually hired Jiggs McDonald to come in in the second year and, wow. and and be my broadcast partner. And then we just we did the continuity kept going with, you know, we, we did both home and away with the same broadcast group. So anyway, but that was yeah, it was fun. I watched you know um, uh, actually CBS I think it was. Back then, uh, the final game when Bobby Nystrom scored, that game uh, we didn't broadcast. It was done by the networks, and the the, the people were. I mean, I guess John Pickett came to me uh, after it was all over, and he said, "That's never going to happen again. I don't care. Uh, our broadcasters <laughs> should have been broadcasting that game." I'm I'm still hearing from the fans. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> No, you too. Uh, that was a great, great combination. I get a chance, as I said, I get a chance to not only watch you guys on TV, but to see you guys uh, occasionally live and in color in in Hartford as well. But Ed, I really wanted to. First of all, we've delayed our Boston Bruins reunion for obvious reasons. Yeah. So we're yeah, look, yeah. looking forward to uh, to getting everybody back into Boston together. But in the meantime, I really wanted to. Thank you. Certainly one of the classiest players of that generation. Oh, and, you're fine. And you're... Uh, great, uh, great thrill talking to you, and thanks so much for taking the time. Well, I, I, I've got so many. I'm up in Boston a lot. I've got family in southern New Hampshire, and i got all my pals around the Boston area, and I still fly my own airplane, so I can oh, come really? and go whenever wow. I want. <laughs> great. I'd say, I've, I've learned a lot of this interview, and that was like, what, I, I had forgotten that you had the uh, the pilot's license, too. So. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, wonderful airplane, and I enjoy it. It gets me around. <laughs> yeah, I'd say. Well, that's okay. uh, that's good. Stay healthy, and we'll look forward to oh, seeing you. Oh, you too. Thanks, Ed. Oh, thanks for the, as Bob Hope would say, thanks for the memories. <laughs> <laughs>
Thank you for listening to the Pro Hockey Alumni Podcast, the voice of hockey legends. If you enjoy listening to the show, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing the show on iTunes. This helps make our podcast more visible and accessible to hockey fans around the world. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for the show, please contact me at prohockeyalumni.org or via social media at prohockeyalumni. The Pro Hockey Alumni greatly appreciates your support.